Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. I've called this Truth Talk Legalism, License, Lodges and LGBT because the former two are the main subject matter of this talk and the latter are current examples of how these apply in the world today. In 2010, I wrote an article that I ended with these words. I said, I've been involved in pastoring for over three decades, and in that time, I've seen the problems that license and hypergrace can produce, yet nothing compares to the ubiquitous ravages of legalism that I've observed in the body of Christ. I haven't changed my opinion in this regard over the last 10 years. So although I will reflect on license in this talk, the focus is more on legalism. Now, in its narrowest sense, legalism describes the attempt to put works above the gospel of grace. Christian legalists attempt to earn God's favour by observing what they understand to be the law of God. In its broader sense, however, legalism is the practice of judging oneself and others against a narrow understanding of biblical precepts. This approach to Christian life invariably results in judgmentalism, censure and separation. A short while ago, I had a lively interaction with a friend and fellow Christian concerning Freemasonry. That's why there's this word lodges in the title, because the Masons meet in what they call lodges. Then just a few days after that, another friend and I discussed the question of, can a gay person be a Christian? In the first of these interactions, my interlocutor ended his comments on the possibility of a Mason being accepted as a member of the local church with the words, A church member who continues to practice Freemasonry is committing idolatry and should be challenged, in my opinion, and booted out of the church if he continues to be part of Freemasonry. Hmm. So, let me start by responding to this and then move on later to the question of homosexuality in the church. My view is that the practice of Freemasonry violates several important biblical doctrines. It evokes gods by names that do not pertain to the God of the Bible, therefore it's idolatrous. Their secret oaths contradict Jesus' teachings. Their way of salvation is not exclusively through Jesus alone, and so on. And I would certainly advise any Christian committed to the Mason pseudo-religion to just leave it. I would also point out that in practicing masonry, he is compromising or even contradicting key biblical doctrines. The pointed issue, though, is would I deny that he is born again of the Holy Spirit and thus disqualified from being a member of the church, either universal or local? The new birth is a metaphysical spiritual gift of God, giving new life to a human spirit. And it is conditional only on repentance from the sin of rebellion against God, firm belief in the deity of the Lord Jesus, and his exclusive role as Saviour, and a sincere request to the Holy Spirit that he breathe life into the very core of this person's existence. Now, nothing more is required for a person to be born again. Baptism expresses obedience and the reality of new life in Christ, but is not a prerequisite for salvation. Confession of a few or many sins 
is not required, but only the confession and renunciation of rebellion against God. So just to make clear what I mean by rebellion against God, I understand this as the core sin of trusting in anything other than God for eternal life. So would I automatically judge that a man practicing Freemasonry is not born again? No, I most certainly would not. However, could he, if indeed born again, be a formal member of a local church? And the answer is obviously no, if the membership requirements of that particular church specifically excluded any practicing Masons. Most churches, in fact, all that I know of personally, do not specify Masonry as a disqualifier to membership. Rather, they simply require that a member accepts their doctrines and practices. The constitution of the local church to which I belong states that a person may be accepted into membership if he professes repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, seeks to lead a consistent life and has expressed a desire to become a member of this particular church. The point that may be, deba be debated is the seeks to lead a consistent Christian life bit. Now this would require discussion with the individual concerned to seek to understand how he views the practice of masonry and why he does not see it as contradicting or compromising his Christian beliefs. This would reveal the conflicts between a consistent Christian life and the practice of Freemasonry. This might mean that he forego membership status in the church. Just as a matter of interest, in 1993, the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States investigated Freemasonry and identified eight tenets of their teaching of Freemasonry that were not compatible with Christianity. A later report ended by noting that while many Christians and leaders have been and are Masons, several points of the Lodge's teaching are non-biblical and non-Christian. It also stated that while Freemasonry encourages and supports charitable activities, it contains both multi-religious and inclusivist teachings that are not Christian in its religious instruction. So the final recommendation was that the issue is left to the conscience of the believer. In 1985, the Methodist Church in the United Kingdom issued a condemnatory report on Masonry but no prohibition exists within that domination. However, in the USA, the Assemblies of God, the Lutherans and the Presbyterians have all taken a negative position on Masons being members of their church. My second recent discussion was about whether a practicing homosexual could be regarded as born again. This applies to the LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people by and large. Once again, my position is that biblically approved sexual preferences do not constitute criteria for salvation. Church membership, as in the previous example, is another matter altogether. The issue here is the willingness to seek to live a consistent Christian life in a particular local church. As in all things in a Bible-believing church, the criteria for this is laid out in Scripture. I do not believe that a person who continues to indulge in homosexual relationships could be accepted into local church membership. They should be accepted as people of worth and value and treated with dignity and consideration, but denied membership and all that goes with that. They, 
as would all people, be welcome to attend the worship services and perhaps even the fellowship groups, but they would be prohibited from ministering in any way. However, would I automatically judge that a practicing homosexual is not born again? No, I would not. That judgment call is entirely and only God's prerogative. The key question to ask is, as always, what did Jesus reveal of the nature and character of the Godhead concerning this? Well, he did not address the issue of secret societies, although they were several in his day, and nor did he directly address the question of homosexuality. However, John chapter 8 records the story of a woman caught in the act of committing adultery and dragged before Jesus. He turned the tables neatly on his accusers, and when they had slunk off, he said to her, Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This both captures the heart of God towards such people and sets a precedent for us in church, a precedent of dignity and personal worth, compassion, discussion, instruction, and a call to change. I've written so far only on two issues that regularly face the church, and I've spoken now only on these two issues. However, there are other issues which are even more common. A man abuses his wife. Surely the same principles must apply. A person repeatedly cheats or steals. The same principle must apply. A spouse commits adultery, does not repent, and makes little effort to prevent a repeat occurrence. The same principles must surely apply. However, there are more common misdemeanors in the church of our day. For instance, what should we do about the person who repeatedly sows fear in others' lives by circulating rumors, myths, and conspiracy theories? And what about the people who act as religious policemen, regularly taking others to task and judging for them for what they perceive to be unbiblical ideas or behaviors? Well, I believe that the same principles outlined here should apply to them as well. I've mentioned that there were some howevers to what I've said so far, and here they are. Firstly, Jesus is our prime interpreter of the Bible, but he honored and authenticated all of Scripture. Therefore, we cannot ignore what the Scripture as a whole says about the issues before us. For instance, the law of the Old Testament strongly condemns both idolatry, which has a bearing on Freemasonry, and homosexuality. Find that in you know, Exodus 23 and 5, Leviticus 18 verse 22, and so on. Paul also dealt with these and other prohibitions, some of which I'll refer to in, in a minute. Secondly, we need to be careful to differentiate between saved and church member. They have a bearing on each other. But as I've already pointed out, the conditions for being born again are articulated in the Bible. On the other hand, leaders who understand the Bible in various different ways establish the conditions of church membership. Thirdly, we need to apply what we understand as a Jesus-centered understanding of Scripture to the full range of sins, and not just the few we choose to be our focus. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 8 to 11, Paul lumps together all of the following. Listen to them. Sexual immorality. Can we dealt with that? Idolatry. Yep. Yeah. Male prostitution. 
homosexual offences, theft, greed, drunkenness, slander and swindle. So what applies to one, to some extent, applies to all. This highlights the need for careful evaluation, counsel and grace, together with compassionate confrontation and Bible-honouring remedial action. Other applicable passages, by the way, are Galatians 5, 6-21 and Ephesians 5, 5-7. Now Paul makes a sharp distinction between people who claim to be fellow Christians and those who do not claim to be born again. It is not our responsibility to judge the unsaved, but we are required to set boundaries on what we accept for ourselves and fellow believers. In this respect, grace describes what we extend to one another within these boundaries, while license describes what we allow beyond those boundaries. During my decades of church leadership, I was constantly seeking to embrace both grace and righteousness. It's a very challenging task that involves bringing into dynamic balance more than just the factors I've mentioned in this short talk. However, and this hopefully is my final, however, I will always favour mercy over judgment, just as I consistently rely on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ to primarily determine my understanding of the entire Bible. The Lord Jesus was sometimes frustrated by his disciples, but he reserved his anger for one class of people only, the Pharisees. These men were typical examples of legalism, and their constant rule-keeping and judging of others made him nearly apoplectic. If you don't believe me, just read Matthew 23 verses 13 to 36, if you are any doubt about this. So, in conclusion, let me end with this. If a person has genuinely been born again of the Spirit, then no life condition can annul this. Paul wrote, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's in Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. However, when it comes to local church membership, the matter is more complex. A local Christian community has the right and indeed the duty to determine criteria for membership and accountability. But, and it's a big but, the overriding principle must always be biblical Christocentricity. I'll say that again, biblical Christocentricity, that's Jesus-centeredness. For instance, Jesus told his distractors to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's in Matthew 9.13. He was, of course, quoting from Hosea 6.6, 6, which reads, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. My friend ended his statement on Freemasonry with, Do you agree or not? It seems crystal clear to me. I don't believe this is a grey area. So, dear listener, what do you think? I have to confess that I reacted badly to my friend's comments. It was not because I did not agree with much of what he said, but because the spectre of legalism loomed so large over our conversation, and this made me anxious and upset and angry. I've seen firsthand 
how all and any forms of legalism hurts the church, destroys relationships, and leaves many bitter and offended. License, expressed as turning a blind eye to unbiblical and unchristlike behavior, does definitely do harm to Christians and the church, but it's nothing like the carnage that legalism leaves in its wake. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Colossians 3 verses 12 through 14. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth talks.